Welcome to We The Podcast, the show about how people outside the millionaire and billionaire class, you know, most of us, engage the economy. Do me a favor. Close your eyes and think about the word home. What does it mean to you? What do you see? If you're thinking of your childhood home, you're probably thinking of your fondest memories. Holiday dinners with your parents, playing in the yard with your friends, and maybe even the time you broke the couch roughhousing like I did with my brothers when we were teenagers. If you're thinking about the home you currently have, you're probably thinking about how it makes you feel safe. And if you have kids, how you want it to be the best environment possible for them to grow up in. To millions of people across America, a safe, stable home is something they only dream about because it's out of reach. Too many people struggle to pay their rent, which is rising faster than their wages. Five years ago, your average one-bedroom apartment in Minneapolis cost about 750 bucks a month. Today, it's twice that. Nationwide, more than one in four families pay more than 70% of their income in rent. We're losing affordable housing units faster than we can replace them. We have a shortage of 11 million affordable homes, not just in coastal cities, but all over the country, even in the Midwest where I live. Many people think that poor families, people with disabilities, and low-income seniors receive housing assistance. But for every family or individual who may qualify for help, four are left to fend for themselves even though they qualify, even in an expensive private housing market. It's clear, we have a housing crisis in America. To get a better understanding of why families will be stuck in poverty until we ensure low-income families have affordable housing, I sat down with Matthew Desmond. He is the author of a great book, and I really recommend everyone read it. It's called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American city. If I can uh, just get us started by actually quoting from your book, in your epilogue, you say the following, the home is the wellspring of personhood. It is where our identity takes root and blossoms, where as children we imagine, play, question, and as adolescents, we retreat and try. As we grow older, we hope to settle into a place to raise a family or pursue work. When we try to understand ourselves, we often begin by considering the kind of home in which we were raised. Matthew, why did you sort of... um, really just sort of define home for us this way at the end of your book. I just thought, you know, it's so central to everyone's life, and that includes families of moderate means. And the families that I met in Milwaukee, you know, these families paying 70% of their income on rent, 80% of their income on housing costs. You know, that problem was central to uh, their predicament, you know, and it was a wellspring not only of, 
good things in their life when they found housing stability, but as well think of all sorts of negative things too when they didn't find that stability, you know, and we see that the lack of affordable housing, which is deeply implicated in their lives. And I think that to really fix poverty in America, we have to focus on the home. Yeah. And, and I tell you, home is so key and everyone either has a good home or they have, they live somewhere, might be in a, uh, under a bridge or, or it might be in public housing or it might be, they live somewhere. And so where you live is going to impact your life chances. Is that is that one of the things that really came out of your book for you? I think so. You know, home is the center of life. And a lot of times when we've kind of said, you know, your address depends, uh, determines your life chances, we focus on things like your neighborhood quality, how much poverty is in there or crime is in there. And gosh, that's really, really important. But we also have to focus on just this inability of so many low-income families today to be able to hold on to a home, to be part of a community, because there's so much residential instability caused by the simple fact that uh, millions of families can't afford a roof over their head anymore. Could you talk about the extent of the problem? I mean, um, I think a lot of folks who might be stably housed might not really know how tough it is for people to keep, uh, keep a roof over their heads and their family. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know before I started this project, you know. Um, but what we've seen over the last uh, two decades is, you know, incomes for families of moderate means have basically been flatlined or even fallen in real terms, but their housing costs have soared. You know, median asking rent has increased by over 70% since 1995. And government assistance fails to bridge the gap. You know differently, but I think a lot of folks out there listening might still imagine the typical low-income family lives in public housing or gets some sort of help from the government. But as you know, sir, the opposite is true. Only about one in four families that qualifies for housing assistance receives it. So you put those kind of three ingredients together, rising housing costs, stagnant incomes, and just the, the inability of federal policy or state policy to meet the need, and you have an affordable housing crisis. Today, the majority of renters below the poverty line spend at least half of their income on housing, and one in four spends over 70% just on rent and utilities. And evictions, which used to be rare in this country, uh, used to draw crowds, um, have skyrocketed to the point that today we're probably evicting millions of Americans every year. Yeah, and you know... Um while our outlay on uh, on housing is not really kept up very well, you know the fact is we spend tons of money uh, on on uh, on housing, do we not? I mean, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation, the mortgage interest deduction cost the Treasury about seventy billion dollars in two thir- in two thousand thirteen, uh, and um, and yet if you look at the budget for housing and urban development, we really don't spend nearly that much, right? So what does it look like when we look at how much we spend um, on housing for upper and middle income people rather than on people who are more moderately, uh, whose family budgets are more moderate and more modest? Yeah, I think this is a key point, you know, and one of the one of the people that I met in Milwaukee was a woman named Marlene, right? She's single mom trying to raise two boys 
uh, in the inner city paying over 88% of her income on rent. And she got evicted as you would under those conditions, you know. And um, the year that Arlene was evicted, we spent about $41 billion as a country on direct housing assistance to the needy, to people like Arlene. But that same year, we spent $171 billion on all homeowner tax benefits. Mm. And it was just an amazing number. You know, that number, as you know, was equivalent to the entire budgets for the Departments of Education, Veteran Affairs, Justice, Agriculture, and the Department of Interior combined. It's a large number. And most of that benefit did go to homes with six-figure incomes. So, you know, if we're going to spend the bulk of our public dollars on the affluent, at least when it comes to housing, I think we have to be honest about that fact and own up to that fact and stop repeating this line that this rich nation can't afford to do more. If poverty persists in America, it's not for lack of resources. Maybe we lack something else. Will, perhaps? It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. And I think that the wager that the book makes is, you know, if we tell these stories with complexity, if we show the choices that parents are facing today, the choice to feed their kid or pay the rent, to buy their kid's school clothes or pay the electricity bill. If we show how that that lack of affordable housing really uh, leaves a deep and jagged scar in the next generation, that will raise awareness, that will kindle will, and hopefully it'll allow us to do something something big about this problem. I do, I mean, I do take heart in the fact that you know we've done these huge things when it comes to housing. In America, you know, just a few generations ago, there were slums in our cities, right? And, like, there were outhouses in the middle of Minneapolis. And we took on a battle with the slum and won. And I think that it's encouraging because we, we, when we want to um, address problems of this magnitude together, we can make a huge difference. Do you think that people understand how elemental and rudimentary housing stability access and therefore like affordability really are in terms of alleviating poverty. I mean, you know, so often we're in conversations about addressing poverty and we talk about welfare or we talk about education as a long-term goal, but it seems to me housing is like a big piece of the answer. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, you know, I feel like you're, you're the expert here on this one. And but I, you know, we do often talk about jobs, the family, welfare, mass incarceration. God knows those are incredibly important topics. But, you know, when I was living in a trailer park in Milwaukee and living in an inner city of Milwaukee and meeting families completely crushed by the high cost of housing, you know, the private rental market was fundamental to their lives. You know, it dictated who they got to live with, where they lived, how long they could stay in an apartment, how much money they had at the end of the month. And so I think that to really have a full picture of poverty in America, we have to put housing at the top of our agenda. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that you went into in your book, and if, I hope you don't mind if I read from your book again, uh, you write, um, uh, because black men were disproportionately incarcerated and black women disproportionately evicted, Uniformly denying housing to applicants with recent criminal or eviction records still had an incommensurate impact on African-Americans. 
Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, everybody kind of, we do talk quite a bit about mass incarceration now, but we don't talk too much about mass eviction and how, while it affects everyone uh, who is of moderate means, it, it hits black women pretty hard. It does. It does. And, you know, you know this from being in urban housing court, you know, and if any of your listeners have been to an urban housing court, you can see the face of America's eviction epidemic. And it's really moms with kids. It's moms with kids, you know. And until recently, for example, the, the housing court in the South Bronx had a daycare inside of it because there are so many kids coming through its doors. And you're right, you know, low-income African-American women and mothers in particular are evicted at startlingly high rates. You know, we have among Milwaukee renters about one in five black women reports being evicted sometime in her life compared to one in 15 white women. It's an incredible amount of instability within low-income black communities. And I, I kind of see this as, you know, kind of like the feminine equivalent of incarceration or something like that, where yeah. and we know that many of our young African-American uh, poor men are being locked up, and many of our poor African-American women are being locked out, and they and their children are bearing the brunt of the eviction crisis. Yeah, and so... And, and so that kind of displacement, I mean, obviously has some implications for family stability. I mean, how does housing instability for these families uh, impact their ability to get educated, stay healthy? It's huge. You know, uh, eviction causes loss. You know, families not only lose their homes, but often their schools, their neighborhoods, and their possessions, which are taken by movers or piled on the sidewalk takes a good amount of time and money to establish a home, and eviction can erase all that. An eviction can bar you from accessing decent housing or a safe neighborhood after you're forced out because many landlords turn away families with a recent eviction on the record. So these families are pushed into worse housing, their worst neighborhoods. If we want to know why some kids live with exposed wires and no heat, bad plumbing, one reason is that the families are forced to accept those conditions in the harried aftermath of an eviction. Eviction causes job loss. You know, I just published a study that shows that workers who lose their houses are about 20% more likely to lose their jobs the next year. And if your listeners have been through this process, they know why. It's such a consuming, stressful event. It can cause you to make mistakes at work, lose your footing in the labor market. And then there's the eviction's effect on your health, like you mentioned, and um, especially your mental health. You know, I have a study that shows that mothers who are evicted experience higher rates of depression two years later. And we know that between 2005 and 2010, years where housing costs around the country were soaring, so were suicides attributed to eviction. They doubled during that time. Hmm. And so I think you add all that up, right? And I think we have to conclude that you know, eviction's not just a condition of poverty, it's a cause of it. It's it's really making things worse. You know, I tell you, I was talking to some uh, homeless vets who had recently gotten their hands on some decent housing. And one of them said this, you know, uh, Congressman, that's what he called me. Um, you can't get clean on the street and you can't keep a job on the street. Right. What? Could you kind of reflect on that? I mean, here's a guy who had had bouts with chemical dependency, wanted to get clean, but on the street, according to him, it's just tough. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that the book bears this out a bit in Scott's story, right? And yeah. Follow Scott, who 
was a nurse who got uh, hooked on painkillers and eventually developed a full-blown heroin addiction. And we see him really wrestling with that addiction and um, throughout the book. But at the end of the book, you see him get stably housed, you know, through um, a guest program. And after that, you know, he gets clean and he gets a job and he gets back on his seat. And I think that, like, the take-home point for me is, like, poverty isn't just poverty, right? It's it's almost never just an income level. It is it is sometimes about addiction. It is sometimes about um, broken families. It's It's sometimes about being exposed to violence and crime. And so it looks really complicated to address. And it is, but I think that providing folks access to a stable, affordable home is a really sure foothold on the road to economic mobility and self-sufficiency. And I think that's bore out in the veteran story that you talked to and it's bore out in Scott's story as well. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned Scott because one of the things I really respect about your book amongst many other is that you don't sort of like ghettoize eviction as like a black problem. You know, you while you do address, you know, racial uh, disparity clearly, you also spend time in a trailer park, which I think was either all white or all, nearly all white. I guess it was one couple that had a black child who was in the home uh, from a previous uh, relationship. But that, you know, you spend time among white people, and I appreciate you doing that. And the reason why so many things in our world uh, are thought of as a black problem, but they're actually a problem that a lot of Americans are sharing. Examples include food stamps or what we used to call food stamps, but what is now SNAP program. They, we think it's a right. black program, but it's a more white people are on it. Even officer-involved shootings happen more to white people. That's because there are more white people, and of course, blacks are disproportionately um, involved in officer-involved shootings. But the raw numbers are clearly there are more white people. But in in the area of being unstably housed, while African Americans may uh, bear a tougher uh, burden in many in many, way, many ways, it's not as if white families are immune from being unstably housed. Could you talk right. a little bit about white poverty and housing? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that was an important part of this work to try to capture just how broad housing instability is. And you're right, it's not just a problem that's focused on low-income communities of color. It's in white communities. It's in immigrant communities. It's also not just a problem in San Francisco and New York City, right? It's yeah. in Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Houston and all over the country. Today, one in five of all renters in America spends at least half of their income on housing. It's a 20%. widespread problem. And I think that capturing you know, the stories of folks in this majority white trailer park was really illuminating to me. You know, there's a lot of similarities between their stories and the stories of folks in the inner city community, the majority of black neighborhoods in Milwaukee, uh, with respect to people struggling to find housing. It's also important to recognize that things like housing discrimination against um, uh, people of color is is still very much alive and well. And, And, you know, these are, there are moments documented in the book and there are tons of studies that document the saliency of racial discrimination today, too. And that, you know, the folks in the trailer park, they didn't experience that, you know? And they were able to find housing quicker, in most cases, than the folks uh, from inner-city Milwaukee. And I think that's that's an important point the book makes as well. 
Would you mind talking a little bit about life living in the trailer park? It really was somewhat amazing to me that, you know, the owner, uh, despite the place being run down and having a whole lot of problems that he had been cited for, still managed to make a whole lot of money out of that trailer park. That was surprising to me, too, you know, and one of the questions that I wonder when I went into this is, you know, why, if you could buy property in a lot of places in the city, why why would you buy a trailer park? Or, you know, why would you buy property right in the heart of the inner city? And when I left this work, I, I thought, gosh, why wouldn't you? You know, there there is money to be made. And by my estimate, anyways, you know, the owner of that trailer park, which was 131 trailers, um, uh, was was bringing home about four hundred thousand dollars after expenses, you know, and and I calculated expenses including non-payment of rent, eviction expenses, mortgage, property taxes, and um, and that means he was he was a lifetime away in terms of income from from most of his tenants, you know, uh, well, making four, you know four hundred thousand dollars, four hundred thousand dollars a year is a lot of money. Well, it, it is a lot of money, and it's especially a lot of money relative to what his tenants were making. Um, I think, you know, the story the story's complicated, right? I mean, a lot of the, the folks in the trailer park respected him, looked up to him. A lot of them um, had more negative views toward him. But the fact of the matter was that landlording in poor neighborhoods can be, not often, you know, not always, but it can be, a lucrative business. And I think that that's an important point for people like us that really care about poverty, because a lot of times when we talk about poverty, we usually talk about it as, um, as like a lack to use the barrel satter, the historian's phrase, you know, like the inner city lacks good jobs or good schools. And, you know, that, that often is true, but I think we also need to focus on the fact that poverty isn't just um, a state of low income that's also caused by extractive markets, or, or maybe we should use the word exploitation. And, and um, I think looking at poverty in that way, for me anyway, it really changes how you understand the sources of it and how we think about getting out of it. You also made the point that um, even though inner city housing that, that has more people of color living there, uh, even though the housing quality is often cited for quality problems and even safety issues, you would guess in a whole, you know, you know, a free market, you know, demand supply kind of way that the prices would be particularly low. But you point out in the book that they're not particularly low. Actually, they're sort of high and that segregation, racial segregation actually helps to protect uh, the, uh, or actually helps to maintain those, the, the exorbitant amount of expense associated with living in that kind of housing. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, Congressman, this is a deep read of the book. We are in it. We are, we are in some tactical stuff right here. That's now, when I told you that I read it, I was not kidding. <laughs> you read it. <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. You know, and so rent for a two-bedroom apartment in the poorest neighborhood of Milwaukee is only about 50 bucks less than the citywide median. And so, you know, what you have from a landlord's perspective is the opportunity to buy property pretty cheap, you know, in, in low-income distressed communities. You know, you can buy a duplex, at the time of my field work anyways, for 8000 bucks, 10000 bucks, and you could rent that out and you could recoup your cost in, a, in about a year's time, and then it just cashes out. Mm-hmm. So the thing that makes home ownership in those communities potentially risky investment 
um, low property values makes being a landlord in those communities a potentially lucrative one because you can rent almost at the same rate as you can in uh, much more affluent neighborhoods, uh, but your costs are much lower. Uh, you don't expect appreciation. Like one landlord I talked to said, you know, you're not in it for the future. You're in it for the now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're about milking those properties for, for all you, you can. And you also did a little bit of a history economics lesson, too. I mean, I mean, one of the things I thought found very interesting is that I think a lot of people assume that, you know, you get low income people coming into a neighborhood that neighborhood, uh, you know, the new residents don't have as much money as the old residents. Therefore, they don't keep up the property. Therefore, the property runs down. Therefore, uh, you end up with a slum. But you gave an explanation that was kind of the other way around, that people came into a segregated area, that they didn't have to keep up the property because the residents that they were renting to didn't have other options around the city because of segregation. Uh, is that something you might want to address a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's key, you know. So when we see the northern migration of African Americans that are trying to escape the racial violence of the South and come to Minneapolis and Chicago and Milwaukee and the northern cities, they're segregated, right? They're ghettoized into certain areas of the city. And that, that ghetto is a really incredibly resilient institution in the American city that was enforced first by law and then uh, then by custom after legal segregation fell and, and also just ongoing forms of racial discrimination in the housing market. And so, you know, if you were a landlord uh, that was owning property in the ghetto and you had families that literally couldn't leave it, you know, um, you had no incentive to fix up your property. Uh, what you had an incentive to do was to allow those properties to deteriorate and try to um, try to extract as much profit as you could. And so we see historical evidence in books like The Origins of the Urban Crisis by Tom Segrew or Family Properties by Satter um, or The Making of the Second Ghetto by Hirsch. You know, all these kind of great urban historians saying that, you know, rents in black communities were actually higher uh, than rents in white communities up into the 60s, up into the 60s. And, um, and the housing conditions were much worse. And these housing conditions had real human costs. You know, they, babies died in fires. You know, babies died from tuberculosis. Families had to wear their winter coats inside, you know, in January and February because they're living without heat, without hot water. And so I think you're right. You know, it's not that local families created slums. It's like slums were created because they were profitable. Money made slums because slums made money. Let me say thank you again. I just got one more question I'd like to ask you about, and that is children. You know, we live in a society where everybody's for the kids. You know, if you walk around the halls of Congress and you say, hey, do it for the kids, everybody's like, yeah, I'm for kids. And, you know, we we make a lot about sort of like looking to the future and, 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 and things like that. But when it comes to low-income people in housing, it's really interesting that kids actually may not get any sympathy in terms of whether you get the apartment or not, and uh, they may be the reason that you end up not being able to keep the apartment. I mean, one of the opening chapters in your book is when some kids do do some things that kids probably would do, and as a result, the mom get, is facing eviction. 
this was like Jory and his cousin were cutting up, throwing snowballs at cars, you know, like you do when you're 14. And, um, and hit a car, man jumped out, Jory and his cousin ran inside and locked the door. The man followed them there and kicked the door in, you know, and uh, thank God he left before anything else happened. But you're right, when the landlord found out about that, she decided to evict Darlene and her boys for damaging property. And it's one of many examples in the book where kids don't shield families from eviction. They actually expose them to it. They often are the reason families are evicted, you know, and we did a survey of people in eviction court. We found that, you know, why do you get evicted, but I don't? You know, when we both owe our landlord the same amount of money, and we asked that question, and we found that, you know, it was kids. It was really kids. The odds of you getting an eviction judgment triple uh, if you have kids living with you. And what you see in that finding is landlord discretion, you know, because kids, you know, they cause, you know, your door to get kicked in, and they can flush toys down the toilet. They can test positive for lead poisoning. They can cause overcrowding and stress. One landlord... I met said, you know, kids cause us headache. And so I, I think that's incredibly important. And we know from audit studies that families often face housing discrimination in, this, in over half of their housing searches, you know, families with kids. And so you're right. I think that kids are absolutely central to this issue. Most households that get evicted in Milwaukee have kids living with them. And if we want to give kids a fighting shot, right, like a shot at reaching their full potential, if we want to allow them to form relationships with neighbors, and role models and teachers make friends. We got to give them a stable and adequate place to live. I think without stable shelter, you know, everything else falls apart. What do you think are some of the solutions? I mean, I can tell you one bill that I have is a piece of legislation uh, we call the uh, Common Sense uh, uh, Housing Act. It has to do with converting the uh, mortgage interest deduction to a mortgage interest credit uh, and uh, then capping. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, award at uh, five hundred thousand, um, and then putting the additional money into housing affordability programs. That's just one. There are others, as you well know. It's called the Common Sense Housing Investment Act. What are some other solutions that could get us in a better direction? No, I, I I've read that act, and um, and I applaud it. You know, I think we need bold political leadership on this issue. You know, for years, we've been trying Band-Aid fixes and we're bleeding out. You know, we're bleeding out. And families are, are suffering because of this issue. So I think whatever our solution, whatever our way out of this mess, it needs real moral courage and a political vision. And so one solution that the book advocates for is a universal housing voucher program. Oh, yeah. The idea is really simple. Um, we already have a housing voucher program in America. Section 8. Section 8, you know, if you get it, you know, you can pay 30% of your income on housing, not 60%, 70%. You can take that thing and you can live wherever you want as long as your housing isn't too expensive or too shoddy. The problem is, right, that only a lucky minority of low-income families get Section 8 or a housing voucher. And so the idea is to expand it to everyone below the poverty line. I think that would fundamentally change the face of poverty in America, you know, it drive down evictions and drive down family homelessness. I think it's really telling that um, when families finally receive a housing voucher after years and years and on the waiting list, they do one consistent thing with their freed up income, right? They go to the grocery store with it mm. and buy more food, you know, their kids become stronger, healthier. But the sad fact is the majority of 
poor families aren't so lucky. And their kids, like Jory, like Jafaris in the book, they don't get enough to eat because the rent eats first. And I don't think we have to tolerate that in this in this sloppy country. We sure don't. Let me just tell you, as we close up, in Minneapolis, we have about 4,000 kids who leave a shelter to go to public school every day. We, mm. we have about 10,000 uh, people on a waiting list for public housing, and we have about five, 6,000 for waiting for Section 8. Uh, and mm. yet we have uh, expensive condos going up all over uh, like you can't even believe. Uh, mm. And so this is the situation. Well, thank you for your book and your work. What are you working on now? I'm trying to figure out. Um, I'm trying to figure out eviction rates all over the country. I'm trying to get a national estimate of eviction. I want to know, you know, if Minneapolis and Milwaukee evict the same number of people as Chicago or less. I want to know what eviction does to your neighborhood, your crime levels, your voting records. And I'm trying to figure out the rise of you know this problem all around the world because it's not just a problem for us. It's it's a problem for London and Lagos, Nigeria, Delhi, uh, Seoul, Korea, you know. We've kind of uh, moved the world to cities, and cities everywhere are becoming unaffordable, and that's fundamentally changing the face of global poverty. And cities and people are responding in really different ways. And I think this is one of the most pressing problems that we as a, as, as a human race are going to face in the next century. And so we're trying to figure that out a bit. Thank you, Matthew Desmond, author of Evicted. Evicted is a book that I highly recommend. If you want to understand something about affordable housing, you've got to get your hands on this excellent book. Thank you, Congressman. This is a moral imperative. Nobody, especially families with small kids, should have to choose between food and rent. No one should have to live in housing that is harmful to their physical and mental health. No one should have to live in communities that are dangerous. I've talked with people in Minneapolis and all over the country, people who have struggled with homelessness, and they all tell me the same thing. You can't find a job if you're living on the street. You can't get clean if you're living on the street. You can't get calm if you're living on the street. If you're on the street, Everything, everything is hard. But even if you're in housing where you pay so much more than you can afford to for the rent, things are tough too. You're constantly trying to juggle one bill or another just to pay the rent. Sometimes you got to choose between light and the rent, heat and the rent. You got to choose between paying one bill or another, a cell phone, or as opposed to rent. It's tough. And so we got to do something about it. We spend hundreds of billions a year on housing in this nation. However, mostly we invest in housing for families earning six figures a year. That's right. We invest our biggest housing dollar in people who don't need money for housing. And yet, that means the people who need real help with housing go without. I believe there's a better housing choice. We can ensure every working family Every low-income veteran, senior, or person with a disability has a safe, affordable place to live. My solution is something called the Common Sense Investment in Housing Act. That's a bill that reforms the mortgage interest deduction program. But there's also other ideas as well. Matthew Desmond talked about universal Section 8 voucher. 
That's a good idea. There are a lot of good ideas. What we're missing, in my opinion, is will. We need to get the national will to address this housing crisis and invest in housing for people who really need it so that they can have a better shot and a better life and climb this ladder of opportunity in this America of ours. So let's work together to give families what they need to thrive. For We The Podcast, this is Keith Ellison, and we will see you next time. Hey, everybody, head on over to the We The Podcast iTunes page and rate, review, and subscribe. This episode of We The Podcast was produced by Matt Croson, Carol Wayman, and Brett Morrow.